Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, February 15th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, I hope everyone's Valentine's Day went uh, well, smoothly, uh, and uh, met expectations. <laughs> That's the hardest part, right? That's why I always come out on top because I have zero expectations of Valentine's Day. So anything is a bonus. Yesterday morning, my daughter surprised me and my husband with a homemade card that she and my mom had made earlier in the week. And it was awesome. It was it was like all I wanted for Valentine's Day. It's the little things. It's the little yes. things. Though, as you noted in yesterday's podcast, Americans allegedly spent $26 billion on Valentine's Day. So I hope that was money well spent, everybody. Hope you got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I hope everyone uh, had their dreams fulfilled, Jill. However uh, they are fulfilled, whatever you are seeking. Jill, it has been, though, a really uh, busy start to the news week. I know we have a lot to get to in this podcast. Yeah, let's get to the headlines here. Another mass shooting at yet another school. What we know about the Michigan State shooting and the students who have now survived two mass shootings in their short lives. On to the economy. You are not dreaming. It is still costing a small fortune to go food shopping or book a family trip. We've got the latest inflation numbers. And then there were two. Nikki Haley officially enters the race for the White House in 2024 taking on her old boss, Donald Trump. The oldest sitting U.S. Senator, Dianne Feinstein, is retiring, but Congress is hardly getting any younger. We'll take a look at the numbers. Speaking of Capitol Hill, the Intelligence Committee grilled Pentagon officials about the objects that they shot down over the weekend. So do we have any more information? We'll break it down. We may. We kind of, sort of do. Plus, Mosh has on this day. It's a special birthday for the teddy bear today, Jill. And I'm going to guess somewhere along the way, we'll find out the origins of the teddy bear. Yeah, we're going to talk about Theodore Roosevelt and and how he's connected to all of this. Had a feeling that was coming. All right, let's start, though. Uh, We have a lot more information about Monday night's mass shooting at Michigan State University, killing three students and injuring five others. School officials say the gunman first opened fire at Berkey Hall. It's where the College of Social Science is based. That was shortly before 8.30 p.m., killing two people there. Then he went to the student union a couple of minutes away where he killed a third person. Both of those buildings are unlocked. They are open to the public. Uh, After about a three-hour manhunt, police eventually found the gunman off campus. He died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The gunman, notably not a student, he was identified as 43-year-old Anthony McRae, Police say he is not affiliated with the university in any way. No word on his motivation for these shootings. Police do say he had a note in his backpack about mass shootings with threats against two schools that were in Ewing, New Jersey. That is where he has family ties. Police have recovered a weapon. They are not giving details, though, about that weapon. He apparently had two guns on him, unclear if they were purchased legally. A little bit about this guy. Neighbors told media that they had called cops on him for shooting his gun in his backyard, apparently once to quiet pets down. He called himself a hermit on Facebook. He had been arrested in 2019 for carrying a loaded firearm without a concealed weapons permit. His father told The Washington Post he later lied about having a gun inside his home. 
He never served time in prison for that, by the way. He was sentenced to probation in October of 2019 and discharged on uh, May 14th of 2021. But Moshe, we mentioned in the podcast yesterday, shortly after the shooting began, the university sends an email alert to students telling them to shelter in place or to evacuate safely while they looked for the shooter. So the school literally telling the kids to run, hide, fight. And you could just only imagine the absolute terror on campus for students and staff and then for their families and loved ones who are following all the developments from miles away. And if you didn't think that school shootings and mass shootings were an epidemic in this country, for some of these kids, this isn't even the first mass shooting that they've lived through. Yeah, this is par for the course here in this country these days. Um, Multiple students at Michigan State apparently already having survived previous school shootings. We'll get to that in just a second. But first, let's mention the three victims uh, that were killed yesterday. One of those killed was 20-year-old junior Alexandria Werner of Clawson, Michigan. She'd been described by friends as someone who exemplified kindness. She was studying integrated biology and anthropology. And then there were two students who incidentally both attended Michigan State, but had gone to high school together. 20-year-old Brian Fraser, a sophomore from Gross Point, Michigan. His social media indicates that he was studying business and served as a lifeguard. And then 19-year-old Ariel Diamond Anderson of Harper Woods, Michigan. She loved working with kids and uh, had hopes of becoming a pediatric doctor. Those two, again, had attended high school together. But as you noted, multiple Michigan State students have lived through previous school shootings, Uh, one notably uh, the Newtown shooting back in Connecticut in 2012, uh, 10 years ago, as well as a few students who uh, had gone to school in Oxford, Michigan, where there was a shooting just two years ago. One of those students from Oxford, a freshman named Emma Grace Riddle, she's a freshman at Michigan State. She wrote on Twitter, tonight I'm sitting under my desk at Michigan State University, once again, texting everyone, I love you. When will this end? Another student, Jackie Matthews, Uh, took to TikTok, and this video has been widely circulated. She was a survivor of the Sandy Hook mass shooting. She was only 11 years old when that took place in Newtown, Connecticut. She's now 21. Uh, Let's play a bit of what she had to say. So the reason I'm making this video right now is because it is almost 1 a.m. and I am currently directly across the street from where the shootings at Michigan State occurred. I am 21 years old, and this is the second mass shooting that I have now lived through. 10 years and two months ago, I survived the Sandy Hook shooting. And when I was crouched in the corner in school in Newtown, Connecticut on 12, 14, 12, I was hunched in the corner with my classmates for so long that I actually got a PTSD fracture in my L4 and L5 in my right lower back. I now have a full-blown PTSD fracture that flares up anytime I am in a stressful situation or anything occurs that's aggressive like that. The fact that this is the second mass shooting that I have now lived through is incomprehensible. My heart goes out to all the families and the friends of the victims of this Michigan State shooting. But we can no longer just provide love and prayers. It needs to be legislation. It needs to be action. It's not okay. We can no longer allow this to happen. We can no longer be complacent. Jill, I posted this clip on Instagram Tuesday and just hundreds and hundreds of comments Uh, A Canadian chiming in saying, your children don't have to live like this, America. Another person writing, truly heartbreaking. Uh, She she speaks the truth. Oh, my goodness. She's right. Um, How do we let our children live like this? And that was essentially the the comments that have been pouring in as people. It really hits home just given the amount of school shootings we've seen 
pick up over the course of the past decade, it was only a matter of time that some of these kids would have to experience this more than once. One of the reasons I wanted to play pretty much that whole video is because when we talk about these shootings, we we usually talk about the number of people killed and, and we'll tell a bit about some of the victims. But it is so much bigger than that. These kids who were even at the school are just living with so much trauma, like Jackie Matthews described, the, the PTSD that's been with her for 10 years and will unfortunately probably be with her for the rest of her life. Um, even one, I used to be a reporter in Lansing, Michigan. So this story really hits me particularly hard. Um, and one of the photographers that I work with posted something online saying, you know, this was the hardest day that he's ever had at work. And he's been there 20 years. That type of trauma will stay with him. And most that does bring us to what can be done about it. Another mass shooting, more calls for action. We know Congress passed a bipartisan gun law last year. A lot of Democrats said it didn't go far enough. A lot of Republicans said it went too far. Doesn't really look like there is any appetite to do anything else, at least on the federal level. So it seems like it's just up to the states at this point, right? Yeah, it's interesting. Michigan's an, a notable example here because based on the most recent midterm elections, Democrats have now a trifecta in the state for the first time ever, meaning they control the state Senate, the state House, and the governor's mansion. And so the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmore, who, by the way, has ambitions to potentially run for president at some point, is calling for uh, Democrats to get something done here at the state level. But even at the state level, uh, folks are limited because of the most recent Supreme Court decisions that really reinforce the Second Amendment and really uh, start to hamstrung the, the states in terms of what they can do to uh, create limits in terms of gun buying when it comes to assault weapons, etc. Um, that's going to be the challenge here. Um, and this has been an issue in Michigan coming off of that previous school shooting at Oxford High School just two years ago that we mentioned. Whitmer telling the state on Tuesday, we know this is a uniquely American problem, this idea of mass shootings. And when you look at us globally uh, in terms of the numbers here, we really are uh, at the top. You know, we're on par when it comes to gun deaths with places like Somalia, Yemen, uh, war-torn regions in the world. Uh, and, and we are now a country where there are more guns than people. The question is, how do you do that within the framework of the Second Amendment? And that continues to be a challenge here. The Congresswoman, Alyssa Slotkin, she's a Democrat whose district includes Oxford as well as Michigan State, wrote a bill requiring safe storage of guns in households. It passed the House, but months later still couldn't clear the Senate. She's now calling for more action at the federal level. So we'll see what happens, at least in, in Michigan, uh, because as of right now, there does not appear to be appetite at the federal level, as there is typically not to do anything, especially now that Republicans control the U.S. House uh, in Washington. All right, let's turn quickly to the economy. It looks like sky high prices on everything from food to gas to rents, not going down quite as fast as economists had hoped. Some new numbers from the Labor Department show that inflation climbed another 0.5% for the month of January and 6.4% over the past 12 months, both numbers higher than expected. The pace of inflation also picked up from the 0.1% increase for the month of December. There is a little bit of good news. Inflation is coming down from last summer's peak of 9.1%. But the numbers, again, really high. Groceries up 11.3% in the past year. Eating out at restaurants, 8.2% higher. Natural gas, 26.7% higher than last year. Electricity is up 11.9%. Rent up 8.6%. Airfare 
up 26%. I can go on. But it just points to the fact that the dollar just not going as far as it used to. Totally. And there were hopes that inflation would continue to slow down here. And it has just ever so slightly month by month. But this is going to be a long slog to get to where we want to be, which is 2 to 3% inflation from where we were, 9% inflation. And we're sort of stuck here in the sixes, it appears, according to some economists. And there were hopes it continues to go down because that'll mean that the Federal Reserve will stop raising interest rates. And that underscores the challenge here when we saw those numbers pop on Tuesday. Inflation is still three times what it was before the pandemic. The Fed will meet again in March. The expectations were that they would raise rates just a couple more times to be at their 5% number, interest rates at 5%. Though with these most recent inflation numbers, that might mean that they're going to have to go higher than that. Uh, And of course, we know how the Fed interest rates impacts everything in terms of uh, 30-year mortgages, car loans, uh, credit card interest rates, a whole bunch of factors out there that are impacted by the Fed's moves here. And so we have that reality, yet at the same time, Jill, as we report on this podcast, the jobs market still really strong. Yes, we've reported on those jobs cuts happening across the tech industry, but writ large, when you look at the larger economy across the country, hiring is still strong, wages are still going up. And so we're sort of stuck here. We're in this unique quandary, and uh, there are limited tools the government can use to sort of uh, fix it, so to speak. Okay, before we get to the speed read here, let's take a moment to thank our sponsors this week. I want to start with Harry's. Harry's is a brand I've been using for years for a great shave. My wife actually found their aftershave a couple years ago, and I've been a loyal customer ever since. Uh, I'm now trying their shaving cream as well, and I'm so excited now. They are joining as a partner with a special deal for Mo News listeners. I just got one of their five-blade razors as well, a nice weighted handle on that thing. And so right now, they're offering to all Mo News listeners their $15 Truman Shave Trial set for just $3 over at harrys.com slash mo news. It's a $15 value that you're getting for a limited time for just $3 includes the razor, foaming shave gel and a travel cover a key to put on top of your blade. So you, you know, cut yourself in your dop kit keeps the blade clean as well. You can also schedule a replacement blade delivery whenever you need them for as low as $2. I'm genuinely a big fan of Harry's. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Again, you can get their Truman shave trial set for just $3 over at harrys.com slash mo news. That's harrys.com slash mo news. All right, now to our next sponsor, Athletic Greens. I have been taking their AG1 supplement every morning. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy, it's quick, and it lets you get on with your day. Knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals, it also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or you could try it one time for just a month. Again, head to athleticgreens.com slash monews. That's M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, time now for the speed read. Let's start on Capitol Hill from the Associated Press Pentagon officials met with senators for a classified briefing on the UFO shootdowns. Lawmakers expressing concerns about the lack of details about those mystery objects shot down over the U.S. and Canada over the weekend. It comes as the White House Tuesday said they believe the three still unidentified aerial objects shot down 
likely had merely a commercial or benign purpose. They're trying to draw a distinction between them and the massive Chinese balloon that traveled across the U.S. with a suspected goal of surveillance. Officials also disclosed that a missile fired at one of the three objects over Lake Huron on Sunday missed its intended target and landed in the water before a second one successfully hit. Those Sidewinder missiles, by the way, cost about hmm, $400,000 a pop. Yeah. NBD. Yeah, Jill, that actually came up uh, on Capitol Hill Tuesday. The Air Force estimating that the shootdowns over the past week and a half have cost us about two and a half million dollars. And so now the uh, military getting criticized for letting the balloon uh, float for too long, shoot it down, now being criticized for spending too much money to shoot them down and now overreacting. The Biden administration facing a lot of scrutiny on Capitol Hill from both parties, we should say. And and this is the challenge they're facing. First, fighter jets didn't shoot down that Chinese balloon over land. And by the way, that missile missing the uh, intended target over Lake Huron is one of the reasons they didn't want to shoot it down over land. Because imagine trying to shoot it down over land and you got a Sidewinder missile hitting your house in Montana. So that only reinforces that decision. But now uh, in the aftermath of the whole China balloon gate, letting it float too long, then finally shooting it down off South Carolina, they're now asking, why is it that we seem to be shooting down like three things a weekend now? This never used to be the reality. So there's a lot of political questions and security questions. Is the Biden White House overreacting here because of the scrutiny they got and now just shooting down anything left or right to show that they're strong. And so coming out of the briefing, what was interesting, and one person I was paying attention to, Jill, was Lindsey Graham. He's the Republican senator from South Carolina, not known to have many nice words to say about Joe Biden, but he did tell reporters after the briefing that he is less worried after the briefing than he was before the briefing. Uh, He told one reporter, they're trying to figure out, you know, there's a bunch of junk up there. So you got to figure out what's the threat, what's not, you see something, you shouldn't always have to shoot it down. So it's notable coming from him because Republicans were so quick to be like, shoot it down, shoot it down, shoot it down. And now he's like, well, you got to shoot everything down. And that's sort of the quandary the White House finds itself in. But at the same time, they have this inclination that this was a benign thing uh, or these three objects were benign, but there's no certainty. We don't have certainty yet when it comes to what it was, but it does sound like Congress has been satiated to a certain extent from the briefing yesterday. Again, and I know we made this point yesterday, if they are benign, which I'm not saying that they're not, why has nobody claimed them? Jill, you ask a very good question. (laughs) President Biden. (laughs) (laughs) You should have been in that briefing. You should have been in that briefing. Uh, Maybe you would have learned more. But, you know, it sounds like, you know, sometimes the easiest explanation is the right explanation, right? They went through all of this hell over the Chinese balloon. And so now they're on like high alert being like, if there's anything floating out there, that seems weird or isn't talking back, you're like, eh, shoot it down. But now you're you're using $400,000 a pop Sidewinder missiles to take it down. Meanwhile, Biden has ordered National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan to form an interagency team to study the detection, analysis, and disposition of unidentified aerial objects that could pose either safety or security risks. That makes me feel better. Another committee. <laughs> that's, what, that's what government does best, Jill. A committee to look into this. Now on to presidential politics from the Washington Post. Nikki Haley, a former South Carolina governor and United Nations ambassador under Trump, became the second official major GOP candidate on Tuesday, announcing her run in a video and promising an in-person announcement today. Let's take a listen to a little bit of her announcement. 
some people look at America and see vulnerability. The socialist left sees an opportunity to rewrite history. China and Russia are on the march. They all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. And from Politico, 55 things you need to know about Nikki Haley. And Moshe, I promise I won't read all 55. <laughs> I would have to just 54. I know, just kidding. a few of your favorite things about Nikki Haley, or most interesting things about Nikki Haley. Go ahead. Okay, so she was the first person to be elected governor of South Carolina who wasn't a white man. She was, after Bobby Jindal of Louisiana, the second Indian American governor ever. She met on her first weekend of college the man who would become her husband, Bill Haley, and this is interesting. She got him to change his name to Michael. She said, you just don't look like a Bill. And so she started to call him by his middle name. Everyone who knew him before I did knows him as Bill, she once said. And everyone who met him after I did knows him as Michael. One of her roommates at Clemson said Nikki was very, very stubborn if she decided something had to be a certain way. I guess she got it. I don't know. I just thought that was a kind of like bizarre and funny story. Jill, it made me wonder, your husband's named Michael, but you didn't name him Michael. <laughs> no, <right>? no. Um, <laughs> that is his first his, name. It was not his middle name. I did not go changing yeah. his name. What is your middle name, Mosh? David. Huh. It's very simple compared to the first and the last. I was going to say, uh, how, would you have, how would you have felt if Alex came around and was like, I think we're going to go by David from now on. I, I wouldn't feel great about that. Um, but listen, I wasn't there on the Clemson campus back when Nikki met uh, Bill slash Michael. Um, it is interesting. Her <laughs> birth name, by the way, is Nimrata. She was had an Indian birth name, but then went by Nikki for political purposes. And so that is something else notable about her. And so with the announcement on Tuesday, Jill, we were all looking to the other Republican that we know is running already, former President Trump, for his reaction. He kept it pretty clean and sort of above the waist by his standards. He said uh, in his statement, even though Nikki Haley said, I would never run against my president, he was a great president, the best president in my lifetime, I told her she should follow her heart and do what she wants to do. I wish her luck, Trump said. Uh, I imagine all of you can hear the sarcasm there. His super PAC, the Make America Great Again super PAC, which spends unlimited sums on, on his behalf, was slightly more aggressive, saying she looks like more of the same, uh, a career politician whose only fulfilled commitment is to herself. Uh, she is sort of a political chameleon, Jill, because people have been asking, what does she stand for? It really depends on what part of her career you've been watching. She came up with sort of the right-wing Tea Party, then moderated some of her positions. She was then critical of Trump, then embraced him, then critical of him again on January 6th, then embraced him again. So she sort of walks a fine line here, and it'll be very interesting to see sort of where she lands as more and more candidates announce here. We're expecting Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, to announce former Vice President Mike Pence to announce former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. The field is expected to get pretty full on the Republican side, and they're all going to try to stake out uh, where they land and why voters should vote them in. A lot of their arguments, including hers, is all about generational change. A reminder here, Haley, she's a former accountant. She's 51 years old, uh, and she's talking about how Trump is going to turn 77 this year. Biden is 80 years old, turning 81 later this year, and that it is time to hand things to a new generation. And so we'll see if this decision for her to go out there and make this announcement first uh, is really smart 
or not so smart. All of those other men I just mentioned who are planning to run are avoiding taking incoming from Trump. And so some people are giving her credit for announcing early. Some people say it's a really dumb move because going person to person with Trump is not great. A reminder, she does not have a nickname from him yet, but he is known to give nicknames to his opponents. Uh, Ron DeSanctimonious already has one. Sleepy Joe Biden, Crooked Hillary, Little Marco, Cheating Obama, Crazy Bernie, Low Energy Jeb. Anyway, I could go on. Uh, he doesn't have one for Nikki, or at least one that he's announced yet. Also on the political front from the Hill, California Senator Dianne Feinstein on Tuesday announced that she will not seek a sixth term in office and will retire from the Senate at the end of 2024, officially creating an open primary battle to replace the trailblazing senator. Feinstein is 89 years old. She's been subject to concerns within the party that she's uh, suffering from dementia, but defended herself against those claims, citing the death of her husband last year as a chief distraction. However, signs of her declining mental acuity were clear on Tuesday. She was unaware that her staff put out a statement that she was retiring when reporters asked her about it. And she said she hadn't made a decision yet. And then a staffer interjected saying, no, we did put out a press release with the retirement statement. And Feinstein just said, the time has come. Yeah, awkward moment there, but that sort of reinforces the entire thing. And frankly, is leading some to say, maybe you should resign now because you still have two years left representing uh, the most populous state in the country. But we should say before we go on to what's next that she you know, was a groundbreaker when she, along with uh, Senator Barbara Boxer, uh, were the first woman elected to the Senate from California. She is also the longest serving woman in history in the history of the Senate. She has chaired a couple committees. Uh, she is known for authoring the assault weapons ban when it was in place in 1994. Uh, of course, that would elapse in 2004. But there have been calls for her to resign for a while now or to step aside and not run for re-election, especially out of those Supreme Court hearings. She was the lead Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, for the confirmation hearings of Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. And a lot of Democrats felt like she let the party down and wasn't as aggressive or pointed in her questioning, her leadership, her strategy there in handling those hearings. So she still has two more years in the Senate, but the race to replace her is already heating up. Uh, Katie Porter, Congresswoman, Adam Schiff, another congressman, Barbara Lee, another congresswoman, uh, all have either announced their intentions or plan to run. One final thing before we move on to the next story, though, Jill, is though she's leaving, uh, there are a number of 80-year-olds she's leaving behind in the Senate. Uh, when she retires, Chuck Grassley from Iowa is 89. He just got reelected, so he'll be there till he's 95 years old. Bernie Sanders and Mitch McConnell are each in their early 80s. Uh, and this comes as this current Congress is the third oldest ever Congress. The average age of a U.S. Senator, 64. Average age of a congressman uh, or a woman, 57. Mosh, I feel old when I watch the Grammys, but I feel young when I think about Congress. <laughs> <laughs> well put, Joe. Well, well put. All right, from the CBS station in Youngstown, Ohio, the East Palestine community continues to recover and still has a lot of questions and concerns about their health as they return back to their homes and normal life following the train derailment. Tuesday afternoon, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine was joined by state officials to try to answer some of those questions about the February 3rd derailment. DeWine said that he learned the train was not considered a high hazardous material train. That means the railroad was not required to notify residents about what was in the rail cars coming through. 
DeWine remarked that the classification of the train was absurd and called on Congress to look into this in the future. He also assured residents that he feels their frustration, knows why they are angry, and will hold Norfolk Southern, the company responsible for the crash, accountable. Uh, to DeWine's point, if those materials weren't considered high hazardous materials, Mosh, what would be considered hazardous? That's a good question for the Federal Railroad Administration, the National Transportation Safety Board, uh, a whole bunch of federal agencies. <laughs> Is that your way of saying, um, don't ask me? <laughs> ask the feds. Well, I mean, there have been a lot of questions as to the lack of regulation from the federal government that these companies, Norfolk Southern, other railway companies, multi-billion dollar companies, have lobbyists in Washington that ensure that they don't have to have many rules. They donate to lots of politicians in both parties to ensure that they have less rules. So this is the state governor, DeWine, by the way, is a former U.S. senator, who's saying, hey, Washington, we need more rules because there's 140,000 miles of track in this country. And the fact that that train isn't considered high hazardous is absurd. I, I think most people would agree with him on that. So we'll see what Washington has to do. In the meantime, the state is trying to answer questions. Um, to a certain point, I watched part of the press conference on Tuesday, Jill. The officials in the state were acknowledging people's concerns, but sort of dismissing them at the same time. The director of the state Department of Health, his name is Bruce Vanderhoff, urged homeowners with private wells to have their water tested. Uh, in the meantime, he says that everyone should be drinking bottled water, uh, but if you can't, tap is still okay. Uh, again, they're testing the water. That stuff doesn't make me feel very confident. Then he was asked about the smell in the air, the fact that you can still smell, like it smells like chlorine and smells like other toxins uh, really badly. He's like, yeah, lots of stuff smells, but the air tests show that you can still breathe it in and you'll be fine. Again, not as reassuring as people would like, but that was part of it. They asked the governor, DeWine, hey, DeWine, you live in Columbus, but if you happen to live in East Palestine, would you live in your house? He's like, yeah, I'd ask some questions, but I, I, I think I'd feel comfortable living there right now. That's the governor. Then they had another state official who noted that 3,500 fish have been found dead in the uh, waterways, but they're testing the water and they believe the water is safe. And, and that over time, as these chemicals kind of go downstream, the Ohio River runs about a thousand miles to the Mississippi, uh, that basically it uh, dissipates and everything should be okay downstream. I posted a few clips on my Instagram account, but it does come is there's a lot of scrutiny here. And some people are drawing comparisons to kind of post 9-11 ground zero, you know, people, uh, health officials reassuring everyone everything's okay, only to find out years later that it wasn't okay. And that's the concern they're having in Eastern Ohio and West Pennsylvania right now. I mean, if the water is safe, why are the fish dying? They, you know, what's so interesting is like, they were very careful in how they answered the questions. I mean, it appears that the fish died from that initial explosion and the initial toxins that were dumped in the water, but now they don't see additional wildlife dying. So they feel like that wildlife was taken out, but moving forward, we're okay. That's sort of how I would summarize it. From USA Today, Pharrell Williams has been named creative director of Louis Vuitton menswear. Louis Vuitton calling the producer and mogul a visionary and a global icon who has poured his creative spark into many facets for more than two decades. Pharrell will be taking the position that once belonged to designer Virgil Abloh, who died back in November of 2021 from cancer. Pharrell's first collection under Louis Vuitton will be revealed in June during Men's Fashion Week in Paris. Yeah, Pharrell, this is not the first time he's worked with Louis Vuitton. He's done multiple collaborations with them in the past uh, related to sunglasses and other collections, though most of us know him for his musical work, right? He's a 13-time Grammy winner. He's produced mega hits like Happy and Blurred Lines. 
but he does have a, a pretty rich history when it comes to fashion collaborations. He's done work with Montclair, with Adidas, with Chanel. And so now he's going to take the torch from Abloh, who was the first black designer to hold the creative director position at Louis Vuitton, which is a very big deal. Pharrell and him were apparently close friends. Most you and I were chatting before the podcast, wondering the big question, is Pharrell going to stop making music? Because he does have a lot on his plate. No word on the future of his music career. But we do know that last year he announced that he was involved in a new hotel project. It's scheduled to open next year in the Bahamas. And then during the pandemic, he released a portable cutlery set to limit single-use plastic consumption when outdoor dining. So certainly a busy guy. Yeah, Pharrell, 13 Grammys, still in his 40s, uh, has all the music, the hotel project, and the coloring collection. I feel like I want to try a Pharrell fork. Jill, does he spell fork with a PH, like Pharrell? Because <laughs> I feel like that's a missed opportunity. All right, that now brings us to On This Day in History, brought to us by our partner this week, Magic Spoon Cereal. Their peanut butter, frosty, cocoa, and fruity flavors are all a hit. The variety pack right now, jam packs that nostalgia from when we were all kids with those flavors, but you can have it now in a low-carb way. The great thing about Magic Spoon, they're gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and sugar-free. You can head over to magicspoon.com slash monews to grab a variety pack and try it today. Again, the promo code is monews, M-O-N-E-W-S. At checkout, it'll save you $5 off that variety pack. All right, Jill, big news today. As I mentioned at the top, the teddy bear turns 120 years old today. On February 15th, 1903, a toy store owner by the name of Morris Mictum introduced the first stuffed teddy bears in the U.S. He had actually asked permission from President Theodore Roosevelt at the time to use his nickname Teddy. The president agreed, and before long, he was selling them, and then other toy manufacturers got in on it, turning out copies of the stuffed bears, and that soon became the national childhood institution we have today, the teddy bear. But as for that nickname, Teddy Bear, where did it come from? And this is where reports sort of differ. What we do know, though, is that Roosevelt was a big hunter. And apparently, while on a hunting trip in 1902, he came upon an older injured black bear that his guides had tied to a tree. And this is where reports differ. Some say that Roosevelt shot the bear out of pity for his suffering. Others insisted that he uh, freed the bear. He set the bear free. Either he, one. Either one works. Uh, it, they both show a softer side to the grizzled President Theodore Roosevelt. And so that is where he got the nickname. He, You know, he's just a teddy bear, even though he's just this macho guy. Hence the nickname, teddy bear. Hence teddy bears being sold in toy stores just a year later. So happy 120 years old to the teddy bear. Teddy Roosevelt, a Long Island man from Oyster Bay. Jill, there's a long line of Long Island politicians. Uh, there's Teddy Roosevelt. And today we have George Santos. <laughs> Here I thought I had a good little tidbit. Not that I was going to one up you, I but I was very excited I, about it. And well done. I Mosh. turned that one on you, huh? <laughs> if that's where he's from, by the way, I don't think Long Island can claim him. We don't actually know where George Santos. I mean, allegedly Brazil, <laughs> but he represents Long Island. That's the point. Anyway, we have a few celebrity birthdays today. Jane Seymour, the actress, turned seventy-two. The Simpsons creator Matt Groening is sixty-nine. And Megan the Stallion, the singer, turns 28 today. Speaking of music, Christopher Cross, the singer, released his song Ride Like the Wind 
43 years ago today in February of 1980. Christopher Cross, not to be confused with Chris Cross, who we weirdly mentioned on this podcast, I think, every other week. I'm one of the few people who both (laughs) is a fan of the music of Chris Cross and Christopher Cross, Jill, not to be confused. Uh, Staying with a bit of pop culture history here, uh, a happy 38th birthday to Breakfast Club, the 80s film, the iconic 80s film starring the Brad Pack, part of the Brad Pack, including Molly Ringwald, Emilio Estevez, uh, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy. Um, this was sort of one of those iconic John Hughes movies along with Pretty in Pink. Don't you forget about me. Most classic movie, and it is one that I have seen numerous times, in fact. I do want to mention uh, my friends Dana and Adam called me yesterday and were like, you haven't seen Wayne's World? <laughs> what is wrong with you? I, maybe I shouldn't admit that stuff on this podcast. No, no, it's good. We're keeping a running list of of things that Jill should have done in her life, but hasn't, <laughs> including uh, carbonated beverages, folks. She's never drank a carbonated beverage. Fun fact. It, very true. Uh, back to Breakfast Club, I was Googling some of the quotes from that movie because there are so many, and I love this one from Emilio Estevez from his character. We're all pretty bizarre. Some of us are just better at hiding it. That is all, which I think is a good message when you're in high school. Oh, totally. And it's interesting, Jill, you mentioned that because literally uh, the first week of my freshman year of high school back in 1996 in Lincolnshire, Illinois, at Stevenson High School, they showed us Breakfast Club and said, hey, just watch this film. It'll get you ready for high school, which I feel like today wouldn't <laughs> fly. Yes. I feel like that That's would... That's what they did. Yeah, no, the school board, there would be school board meetings. The superintendent would be fired. I mean, that seems like if that happened now, it would not go over well. And it's funny yeah, that they look at... It's interesting that they take that as a model of what to do, because in some ways you could argue, at least from like the teaching perspective, they would say that's not what to do. I feel like that's something that's pretty common today, Jill. These movies from yesteryear uh, that we sort of were super popular uh, and we thought had good messages that today uh, we look back at with like modern mores and we're like, oh, my God, what were some of the things that were being advocated or portrayed on the big screen for kids back in the day. I don't know. Still a classic movie, though. I, I think I've seen it a hundred times, and it's one of those, if it's on TV, I'm watching it. And with a great soundtrack, that might be the reason why you've never seen Wayne's World, Jill, because you've watched Breakfast Club a hundred times. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> we'll end here uh, with one more bit of history. Uh, on this day, 37 years ago, Whitney Houston reached number one with How Will I Know. Uh, and it was among those, you know, back-to-back-to-back number one hits she had there in the mid-'80s. All right, that's it for On This Day in History. A special thank you to Magic Spoon Cereal again. You can head over to magicspoon.com slash monews to get your next bowl and $5 off the Friday pack with the code monews, M-O-N-E-W-S. All right, a big thank you to everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And don't forget to follow us over on Instagram at Mosh, at M-O-S-H-E-H for all the latest and greatest. And we'll see everyone back here tomorrow. Bye. Bye.